This is Patrick Ridgel, and once again, I'm here with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wald. Hello, Tom. Hello, Patrick. So we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, Yes, we do. In the span of less than a week, we've had an election and we have our first ever COVID-19 vaccine phase three data. Those are a couple of very big events for the markets. And for the world. Yeah, yeah, and for the world is right. So where should we start? Well, uh, it's uh, not often a presidential election gets upstaged by another news event. Uh, But of course, this is 2020, right? (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay, so uh, as everybody's uh, probably heard me say more than a few times over the past several months, we view the successful development of a COVID-19 vaccine as the biggest wild card for the markets and really for global society. Mm -hmm. And based on the first round of phase three data that was announced earlier this week uh, from the drug company Pfizer and its development partner, BioNTech, uh, it looks like that wild card could be coming up an ace. That good, huh? Uh, yes, that good. From uh, what was released in their phase three clinical trial, and phase three trials are the most important and final step before FDA approval, uh, mm-hmm. this vaccine achieved an efficacy rate of 90% in terms of preventing COVID-19 infections. 90% sounds pretty good. It's excellent. Uh, now, as a quick basis of comparison, the smallpox vaccine is at about 95% effectiveness, okay. and the chickenpox vaccine is at, is at about 92%. And, of hmm. course, those vaccines have been around for a long time. Uh, I think the bar had been set for a COVID-19 vaccine at about 50% uh, for FDA approval and 75% was about as high as anyone was really speculating. Okay. Uh, your standard flu vaccines are only in the 40 to 60% effectiveness range. So uh, 90% is really off the maps uh, in a good way, of course. Hmm. So where do things go from here? Well, it still needs to be approved by the FDA, and then they'll have to figure out how to precisely manufacture it en masse and get it distributed to the public. We'll probably see a first wave of several million go to frontline healthcare workers, the elderly, and those with serious underlying conditions within the next few months. Uh, Pfizer has said they think they can manufacture 50 million doses by the end of this year and 1.3 billion by the end of 2021. Now, this Mm -hmm. is a double dose vaccine. So you have to cut those numbers in half in terms of actual people receiving the vaccine. Uh, The participants in the phase three trial took two doses uh, in 28 days. Anything more to know here? Uh, Well, there's a a good bit of guesswork as to when the general public will have availability of this vaccine. Uh, Pfizer and some government officials have said March or April, but there's probably some speculation in that. Also, the storage of the vaccine, it could prove challenging. Uh, apparently, it needs to be kept at uh, Arctic-like temperatures. So, how they will be able to ship and store it at those temperatures in huge volumes, uh, you know, certainly won't be easy. Uh, and, and finally, there's no way yet to completely know the duration of the vaccine's effectiveness. And so, participants in the phase three trial are actually going to be monitored for the next two years. 
Okay, but but all all things considered, this is really good news. Uh, it's fantastic news. Uh, much stronger data than almost anyone expected. Uh, and and we're, we are in a much better place in regard to the long-term management of COVID-19 than we were just a couple of weeks ago. I, I say long-term because the virus case numbers are really escalating now. We are at the worst daily infection rates right now by a large factor. Hmm. Uh, so this vaccine news uh, could not have come fast enough. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Let's hope it gets out to the public as soon as it can. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and it's also worth mentioning, Patrick, this is not the only vaccine in late stage development. There are actually three others in phase three clinical trials right now. And we could soon be hearing about some of those as well. Mm, that sounds exciting. So now turning to the markets, what does this all mean for investors? Uh, well, even prior to this vaccine data, uh, we, we, we had a very favorable long-term outlook on the markets. And this news reinforces that. Sure. And that long-term perspective, favorable perspective, was based on a few things. Uh, first, uh, an overall economic recovery that's now running faster than most had believed it would a few months ago. Right now, we're on pace to get back to pre-virus 2019 aggregate GDP levels uh, by the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as recently as last summer, most believed we wouldn't get back there until at least uh, 2022 or even 2023. And and the same can also be said about corporate earnings growth. Uh, S&P 500 companies uh, are looking to also reachieve pre-virus profitability by the end of next year. And we think uh, short-term interest rates will likely remain low for the foreseeable future. Mm. Uh, We don't expect to see the Fed raising rates for at least a couple or three years. And uh, we also anticipate uh, the Fed will remain active with additional monetary stimulus in the form of large-scale asset purchases of treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities at about $120 billion a month, which will provide a lot of liquidity to the markets. Mm. Uh, And that was all before uh, the vaccine news. So if a vaccine is available to the public by, let's say, next spring or even summer, we think it helps the economic and corporate earnings recoveries. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's why the Fed stays at low rates and keeps a liquidity pump going. So uh, that should be a good long-term environment for the equity and credit markets. So you emphasize long term a couple of times there. What about in the not so long term? Yeah, good good question, Patrick. And that's where things could could get choppy. Uh, we think even with this great vaccine news, we could still be at risk for some downside volatility over the next few months, okay. uh, which of course you know could very well wind up being an opportunity for investors. What might drive some of the potential volatility? Uh, Yeah, a a few things. Uh, First and foremost, even though we just got this great vaccine news, COVID-19 cases seem to be increasing almost exponentially. I mean, last April, we hit what people thought might be a peak of about 40,000 new cases a day. But now we are at more than three times that number. We have escalated to tragic and uh, very scary numbers. And even though the fatality rate in percentage terms has come down, uh, these are are really, really concerning numbers. So the human tragedy here, sadly, continues to mount. 
and uh, most likely will for at least uh, a few months. And, and on top of that, um, when you're looking at the rates we're at right now, and we're and and, and COVID nineteen is increasing at about 140,000 cases a day. At that level, uh, we could start to get discussions of another lockdown on a national basis, uh, perhaps in, in the four to six week range, uh, as a bridge to keep case numbers from rising until a vaccine is available. Second, I mentioned the economic recovery a moment ago, which is running ahead of most expectations from earlier in the year. But we could be looking at a very tough fourth quarter, at least on a comparative basis. As we know, the second quarter of 2020, last April, May and June, was the worst single quarter of economic contraction since the 1930s. GDP was down 31 percent on an annualized basis. Then the third quarter, which ended just this past September, was exceptionally strong, the best in American history at better than plus 33% annualized, Mm -hmm. which now leaves this fourth quarter, which we are in right now, looking to be right about halfway in between those other two. Uh, Right now, the Atlanta Fed is forecasting only about 3.5% annualized growth for this quarter, uh, which is a long way from that plus 33% we just experienced last quarter. So the markets may not like that type of result in the next couple of months. And, and, and that GDP growth number you know, could have some downside to it if we don't get uh, an economic relief and stimulus package passed by Congress soon. And if we don't, uh, you know, who, who knows? We could have real anemic or even flat economic growth this quarter. In fact, uh, we're already more than than halfway through this fourth quarter, and it's looking more and more, in my opinion, like we won't see an agreement between the two parties on any new economic relief and stimulus legislation uh, until at least January or February, and, and the market could react negatively to that. Okay. So now that we're talking economic relief from Congress, maybe we can shift over to the other major news event of the past week or so. The election. Uh, yes, let's do that. So what are your initial impressions from a, from a market perspective, of course? Uh, well, like everything else that has happened in this year of 2020, uh, I think the presidential election really was like no other in history. I mean, yeah. beginning with the pandemic backdrop and then the huge amount of mail-in voting that took place prior to November 3rd and how that impacted the timing of the results. You know, for people who may have gone to bed Uh, you know, as late as, say, two or three in the morning. You know, it certainly looked like President Trump was on a pretty clear path to be reelected. And of course, uh, by the morning, uh, when a handful of late uh, reporting states like Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania began counting those mail-in votes, uh, clearly the picture turned uh, quite a bit in a more favorable direction for Joe Biden and then never stopped. So Mm -hmm. it really was an emotional roller coaster for both sides. Yes, and the market reaction in the days immediately afterwards was quite strong. I mean, stocks stocks rallied hard. Yeah, yes, they did. Uh, even before the vaccine news was released, we saw the Dow Jones move up almost a thousand points between the morning of election day and that Friday's close, huh. or about three percent. And the S and P five hundred actually rose by more than that, just over four percent. You know, I think there were there were a few reasons for that. And, and those being? Uh, well, first, 
Big sigh of relief. The election's over. There had been a lot of angst about what might happen that night, but there weren't any major riots or disturbances as some had feared. Uh, So that was a good thing. And even though President Trump looks to be contesting the election and filing lawsuits, I I don't think anyone really thinks this will be like uh, the 2000 election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Right now, uh, Joe Biden is widely being recognized as the winner and president-elect. Second, I think the market really embraced this notion of a divided government, which, of course, sounds bad at first. But in this case, quote-unquote divided means a Democrat White House and Republican Senate, pretty much what it looked like we would have the morning after election night. Uh, This is also, of course, referred to as gridlock, a negative political term. But over the course of history, markets have viewed it far more favorably. To the markets, gridlock is perceived more as balance, sort of interpreted as neither party being able to take their agenda too far, either to the right or to the left. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of traditionally been a harmonious position for stocks and bonds. (laughs) Harmonious? (laughs) Some might say it doesn't feel all that harmonious right now. <laughs> from, from a market perspective, of oh, course. Okay. Uh, let, let, let me give you a couple of quick examples. In 1980, Ronald Reagan, uh, a Republican, of course, was elected by a landslide, and the Republicans took control of the Senate, but uh, the House of Representatives was solidly in the Democrats' majority. The okay. House stayed that way for Reagan's entire two terms, And in his final two years, the Democrats also took control of the Senate. Uh, Investment results over those eight years, the S&P 500 averaged better than a 15% annualized total return. That's pretty good. Uh, Very good. Now let's take 1992 when Bill Clinton was elected. He begins with his party, the Democrats, in majority control of both the House and Senate. But then two years in, The Republicans won back control of both those chambers and held those majorities for the rest of Clinton's two terms. Investment results during those eight years are better than 14 percent annualized total returns for the S&P 500. Now, obviously, there were lots of other things going on contributing to favorable stock returns during both of those eras. However, Mm -hmm. there is still a strong correlating case to be made that the markets can do extremely well. Uh, during extended times of split party power between the executive and legislative branches of government. And going into the election, there was a lot of talk about a blue wave, quote unquote. Biden winning the White House and Democrats taking back the Senate for a clean sweep. Was that scaring the markets at all? I think it was. And of course, that's a a market observation, not a political opinion. Of of course. And, And that market fear was largely based on the previously communicated Biden tax plan Uh, which, as it had been described by the Biden campaign, would rescind the Trump tax cuts of 2017 and raise overall taxes by about $4 trillion. It would raise the marginal corporate tax rate and the top bracket on individual rates, raise capital gains rates at certain thresholds, eliminate the estate tax step-up provision on inherited assets, and even potentially take a hard look at the deductibility of 401k contributions. So in isolation, there is a lot in there the market may not like. And of course, there would need to be a Democrat majority in the Senate to get those sorts of changes in the tax code passed. So a Republican-controlled Senate 
uh, would be able to pretty much prevent this type of Biden tax plan from passing. But we don't yet know for sure which which party will control the Senate. I mean, there's still some races yet to be decided, correct? Yes. Uh, So first thing Wednesday morning after election night, it looked like the Republicans had held their majority. Mm -hmm. But uh, by the weekend, it sort of became a, hey, not so fast situation. And what caused that? So there are two Senate races that are undecided. And ironically, they're both in the same state, Georgia. Uh, This this predicament occurred through a very strange and unusual chain of events, beginning with one of the previous Georgia senators retiring for health reasons last year and an interim senator being appointed by the governor. This created a situation in which you had two Senate seats up for election in the same state in the same year, which is not supposed to happen. But then again, this is 2020. Right. Uh, On top of that. Georgia holds open elections without primaries. And if in a multi-candidate field, no one gets the 50 percent of the votes, then you have a subsequent runoff election at a later date between the top two candidates. And that's what happened in both Senate races. Yeah. So we have a double runoff election in Georgia on January 5th with two Republican incumbents defending their seats. And if they both lose, then the Senate will be tied at 50 50. And then the vice president, which, of course, will be Kamala Harris, breaks any ties and the Democrats would essentially have the majority. This this is this is starting to sound kind of like a movie script. (laughs) Very much so. So the bottom line is we still won't know for certain who has a majority of control of the Senate until at least the first week in January. So the harmonious. (laughs) political scenario for the markets is still at least a couple of months away here, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Now, Georgia is a traditionally Republican state, so most people are attributing a less than even probability the Democrats can win both those runoff races on January 5th. But after what we've seen this past week and the power of mail-in voting, I, I mean, who knows? And if the Democrats do pull it out, take the majority in the Senate, Then I think we have some market downside because all of those tax increases we just talked about a few minutes ago would be back on the table. And the market reaction to that? I think it's probably negative. Again, that's a market observation, not a political opinion, but it hits on two fronts. First, the market's preference for balance between the White House and Congress and the prospect of that $4 trillion in Biden tax hikes. So another potential source of short-term downside market volatility. I see. Now, how does all of this impact the negotiations surrounding the status of a new economic relief stimulus package out of Congress? I mean, as you said earlier, those talks have really stalled out these past few months. Uh, Yes, they have, which is first off uh, quite unfortunate because families and businesses really need that relief as the CARES Act legislation from last March is expiring. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the economy, we may very well need that stimulus to maintain positive GDP growth in the fourth quarter, uh, which we are now about halfway through. So uh, a couple of things are important to take into account. The first is with a Biden administration and a Democrat Senate and House of Representatives, there's a good chance the size of the stimulus package could really skyrocket, so to speak, as from going from a currently negotiated range of about one and a half to two trillion dollars to possibly 
close to $3 trillion. That's a big jump. Do you, do you think the markets would like that? Uh, yes. At first, uh, they could. In isolation, the market may like that. But then we're quickly back to those tax increases necessary to pay for it, uh-huh. uh, which, as we said, could create a negative market reaction. And, and then there's the timing of when the stimulus would be passed. As in after these runoff races in Georgia. Yes. Uh, and think about this for a minute. If you're Nancy sure. Pelosi, why would you negotiate before these runoff elections? If there's a chance your party might have the White House and both chambers of Congress in a couple of months. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me, and again, I'm an investment guy, not a political guy. But if you ask me, I think there is now less of a chance we see an economic stimulus package passed this year and a higher probability we see one in the first quarter of 2021. And this could then in turn further pressure fourth quarter GDP growth, which, as we talked about a few minutes ago, is already going to come down uh, way below the plus 33 percent annualized growth we just experienced in the third quarter. You know, again, the market uh, may not like that in the short term. So it feels like the political and investment worlds are really converging in a way I can't ever remember happening. Uh, Patrick, I've been following elections since I was a kid, uh, since 1968. I can't remember anything like this. Yeah, there's no, there's no question. There's, there's no question about that. I, I think we'll all be remembering this past week for many years to come. I think so. So, Tom, this has been a really interesting discussion, given how eventful the past two weeks have been. Mm -hmm. Any last parting words before we break until next month? Yes, these certainly are historic times, to say the least. I think all this post-election uncertainty works itself out in the next couple of months. And more importantly, the vaccine news is a potential long-term game changer. Uh, Now, investors should brace for some degree of short-term volatility, But the long-term outlook for stocks and the credit markets remains favorable, in our opinion, and is now actually more favorable than a week or so ago. Uh, So we could see some bumps in the road, but we still very much like the road rock. I appreciate that summary, Tom. We'll look forward to next month's podcast. Uh, Yes, we will. Thank you, Patrick. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. economies, and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. 
Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risk. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Alternative investment strategies may include long and or short and market neutral strategies, bear market strategies, tactical strategies such as debt and or equity, foreign currency trading strategies, global real estate securities, commodities and other non-traditional investments. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. 251040.